Hey everybody, this is Carlos. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with one of the young up-and-coming boa breeders in the hobby, James Rubio of Boa Bonanza. We're going to talk about how he got involved in the boa game and his plans for the upcoming season. We're also going to talk about his work enhancing colors in boa morphs through the use of various pastel lines. Finally, we're going to talk about the importance of having the correct ambient temps and humidity for your animals in order to increase your breeding success. Boa Rack Radio is on the air now. Welcome everybody to Ball Rack Radio. I'm your host, Carlos Rojas of Morphs Unleashed. And with me is my co-host, Sergio Hernandez of Sergio Hernandez Reptiles. What's up, Sergio? What's up, buddy? How's it going? Good, man. You know, just enjoying the day. There's good weather up here on the mountain today, so I actually had my uh, little ones in the backyard shooting their BB guns, you know, on little cardboard targets. The cool thing is, like, so the local pizza place here, when they deliver the pizza, which is actually really good pizza, on the bottom of it, of the cardboard box is actually like a target, like a little shooting target. Nah, no way. So you know you're in Arizona when freaking the pizza boxes have, you know, shooting targets designed on the that. bottom That'd of them. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, so they were, they were having fun. They're doing the whole homeschooling thing right now because, uh, because of obviously COVID, right? Yep. So they finished, you know, doing their, their daily homework, and I just took them to the backyard to plink around with the BB gun. But anyway, man. living the dream. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Our guest today is James Rubio of Boa Bonanza. Based out of Florida, James is one of the top young up-and-coming breeders in the industry. He is well known for bringing bright colors into the VPI project using various pastel lines such as Summers Pastel and Cherry Pastel. James, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going guys? Uh, It's pretty cool to be on here today. Yeah, man. Super glad to have you on here, dude. So um, I want to get to your background a little bit, how you got involved with reptiles and how eventually you ended up getting involved with boa. So why don't you uh, tell me the story to that? Yeah, so um, actually my first job out of high school was I worked at a pet store, um, pet supermarket specifically. And um, I remember my job, like every couple days, was to clean the reptile enclosures because we had uh, like a display that had probably I think like 10 or 12 animals in it mainly snakes a couple geckos and stuff like that and um, I was always fascinated with snakes but still kind of scared just because I feel like it's a little bit in human nature to be a little bit afraid of things right like that. right right but um, we had this pastel come in one day pastel bow uh, ball python by the way I know ball python was a boa guy's first snake but um, <laughs> it was super yellow and really cool looking and i was like man i think i'm gonna buy this thing so um after like a month or two it didn't sell i ended up buying it had you know the beginners set up for it which was a terrarium and glass terrarium and all that stuff that yeah. i definitely don't condone rock. anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, i still have them uh, it's been like five or six years since that point so that's how i first got into snakes was a pastel ball python from my first job Awesome, man. And then uh, how'd you start uh, down the path with boas? So um, I had that ball python, and then we started getting in some boas, but uh, none of nothing special. And then one of my first friends in the community uh, was someone who's local to me. Her name's Samantha, and she had some pretty cool um, boas, so she convinced me to start getting into them. And um, I remember I went to go get this one snake from her um and then it ended up trying to bite me in the eye so then i ended up (laughs) 
getting uh, a different snake from her that day, which I still have. Uh, well, actually, it's going back to her, but uh, it was an albino motley call. And then um, I just kind of started getting an eye for all the different morphs and stuff out there by being in groups and uh, YouTube and whatnot. And I started noticing that boas typically like get better as they age compared to most other snake species they typically get uglier because at first i was like looking at um you know ball python stuff just because it was what right. i got first and i was like wow these babies don't look anything like adults um but she showed me her animals as adults and um samantha i mean and versus babies and i was just like wow this is something that's going to continuously get better looking as time passes so that's definitely something you don't want to have like a honeymoon phase and then <laughs> it ends because it's ugly looking <laughs> yeah dude um, I'm, I'm glad you said that man because i think that's one of the big problems we see out there right like there there definitely is that honeymoon phase with a lot of snakes right especially yeah, with especially with ball pythons man you see these beautiful super bright little animals and i'm not trying to knock on ball pythons but it is what it is i mean like they've improved a lot especially with like the desert ghost gene kind of getting in there and other enhancer genes but by and large you get these really bright little animals and <laughs> you know within a year uh, they look like turds <laughs> yeah definitely um and so i appreciated boas mainly because of all the quality uh, lineages that exist within the industry um, that right. have allowed them to typically get better basically every month you uh, go to clean them you know every few days or check up on them and they look a little bit nicer than before and that's definitely awesome it's I think really the only other species at least that I have honed in on I don't keep them but I did occasionally was a uh, carpet pythons a right. lot of the those um, snakes typically get better as well like with the jungles um, and diamonds and stuff like that so yeah no I for really sure appreciate man. for that so let me ask you um what other stuff outside of reptiles are you into that kind of takes you know some of your time um so i play a lot of games with my friends because i'm pretty young i'm 24 so i still game a lot yeah um and then i'm into cars so i am really into um my side chick as my uh, girlfriend calls her uh I have a 2016 Audi A6 that I've done a lot of stuff to and oh, nice, a lot of stuff more to. And I have friends that have cool cars like GTRs and stuff. So we hang out, go to shows, stuff like that. And then also I was huge into the metal scene for years from my teenage days. And I just recently stepped away from that scene probably like a year ago just to focus on other stuff. But I've been to too many shows, have hearing damage, <laughs> stuff like that. So... <laughs> That's awesome, dude. All right, man. So, um, let's uh, let me ask you. So, you've been you're relatively new to the to the boa scene. You're still you're definitely one of these guys that I consider one of the main young and up and coming breeders, right? And um, you have slowly kind of s started switching your collection from a strictly hobby collection into uh, more of a business. So, what's kind of made you go from a hobby collection to let's call it a breeding collection? Uh, well, first, I appreciate that. And um, secondly, um, I mean, it's, it's still kind of like a hobby for me because I don't want it to be my full-time gig ever. But there, I feel like there is a way to support uh, either your collection itself or maybe add a little bit of additional income 
um, without having to have all the stresses that full-time breeders have to deal with. Um, so I've kind of positioned myself where, you know, I have a substantial amount of money in this, but hopefully I've made the right decisions with my uh, projects and my plans for the future that it'll be able to support itself and expand into other things that I would like to do with uh, the boa industry. And I would like to get into a couple other species, but mainly boas is what I want to do and some locales and stuff like that. That's cool, man. So let me ask you, um, who are some of the people that have kind of mentored you or people that inspire you uh, to kind of improve the quality of your collection and kind of improve your uh, abilities as a businessman within the hobby? Um, so... Thomas Cobb, I think that was your first guest on here, has been uh, one of the most helpful as far as technical um, breeding questions go. He's always down to answer questions and just BS with me in general. Um, as far as eye for quality, I've always looked up to DM uh, because the pastel animals and just the caliber of the animals she works with in oh, general oh, totally are, so, are so high that... Um, I really, you know, I kind of modeled my collection a little bit off of her just because uh, of the high color intensity, which is my favorite stuff. I love colorful animals. Uh, Mason is another guy. Mason Allrog is another guy. I think he's kind of stepped back from the hobby, but he's um, helped me as far as a lot of breeding and sorts of projects to go after with color. And then... Um, Let's see. Sergio's helped me a little bit here and there. So uh, thank you, Sergio. And Roscoe, Michael Roscoe is just a good guy to bullshit around with. Yeah, he is. Um, so he's been helpful with me. But I would say Thomas and Mason are the two most helpful people that have mentored me personally. That's awesome, man. So let's talk about what you're currently working with. Uh, kind of let me know what your uh, kind of primary project focus is currently. So my primary project is the VPI and carbon snow project. Um, I got into Kenny's stock um, a couple of years back because I, first off, his collection jumped out to me because the visual VPIs he was producing were absolutely insane. Right. And um, shout out to Kenny I, out there. Yep. Yeah. Shout out to Kenny. That that was before the first VPI Black Hat Annery snows were produced, and I was just like just based off the quality of his animals alone i just wanted to get into the carbon project um back then i don't even think he had a name for it either but um i was invested in the black devil stuff so it just made sense for me to get some vpi pos het black at annery stuff from him and right. maybe eventually hope to someday make um visual double visual black devils um is what the goal was at that time and so i think my first animal actually i think it's the only animal i've gotten from him but it has paid off really well it was a black hat annery aztec 66 percent head vpi which did end up proving vpi and i awesome. made as far as i'm aware as far as i'm aware the only uh vpi sunglow aztec head black hat annery that exists and um he's super duper colorful which is crazy actually sergio sold me the mother as well <laughs> so it's uh funny that he's here co-hosting today um 
so it was really wild because like she was decent looking at, but the dad was a black eyed anery so you couldn't tell that there was color behind it but the crazy thing with the carbon stock that kenny has is for some reason the animals just throw high color animals i had also produced this hypo in it uh in that litter that was so colorful a dude paid triple the price for it than a normal colorful hypo um, even though he wasn't even buying it to breed, he just wanted it as a pet and it was the right. nicest hypo he found on Morph Market. So it was a $1,500 hypo, wow. double head VPI black eyed anery. <laughs> wow. And he didn't ask to lower the price or anything. He was just like, this is the nicest hypo on Morph Market by far. So it's crazy the quality that exists within that lineage. Yeah, no, absolutely. Man. Oh, well, I guess I'm technically not done c continuing where I want to go with this. So, uh, that was the first step was that litter that produced the VPI Sun Tech right, right, right. and whatnot. Um, this past season, I tried unsuccessfully to um, prove the compatibility between RDR and Carbon because I'm sure anyone that is in that project knows that there are two main lines. There's the RDR, which is the uh, you know main line that has existed for quite a bit longer that was started by Ralph Davis. And that's a mainly central line. I think it originated from Nicaraguan, if I remember correctly. Maybe Sergio can correct me if I'm wrong, because I think he has RDR stuff. Am I right on that? Yeah. Or I, I got a few. I just, to be honest, I don't know the, the origination on them. Gotcha. But yeah. regardless, I'm pretty sure they're definitely central. And then um, you have the carbon stuff, which Kenny named, I think, like a year or two ago. And it popped up randomly from Aztec breedings, which is why a lot of people think that that Aztec is um, central-based. Um, so I tried unsuccessfully. I guess the female just wasn't receptive because she's pure central and I keep Colombians, so maybe right. I just didn't go cold enough. But I'm going to try again this year. Uh, I'm going to do separate temperatures for my Colombians and my centrals this upcoming year, and I'm going to try and get her to go with that black-eyed anery Aztec. That's the carbon lineage. Uh, I actually have two litters this season this upcoming season that might prove compatibility. So I'll be running the carbon Aztec het T to a pure RDR, pure central RDR. And then hopefully if I'm lucky, it'll prove compatible because I'm gonna run my SunTech if he's ready, uh, het carbon to my black devil because she's four years old uh, already. So she's got the age there. And if I'm lucky, I'll hit ghost devil Aztec's het VPI. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, that'll be pretty insane, man. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, so that's. I was curious about that. Baby. I remember you mentioning it about the RDR and BEA. So, um, yeah, I was wondering if you were gonna do that. That's pretty cool. Hopefully, it goes this yeah. next coming season. Yeah, so I have ho hopefully two shots to try again this this upcoming season. So it'll be awesome. I I think it'll be really great for the hobby if it proves that the two lines are compatible. Because I think there have been some people standing off from getting involved in the project just because they're not sure what line to go with because they don't want to spend, you know, the big ticket money that this project commands without the assurance that uh, if you bred one to the other, you would get, you know, a visual black eyed anery. So, and I understand that, but I, I like gambling. So, uh, uh, well, even though I don't gamble at all, but I like to play my chances if it makes sense. So, so far it's played off right. I hit the vis the HET BPI, so that's the first step. Now I just have to see if the two lines um, end up proving compatible, which I'm surprised no one has tried that so far because they've both existed in collections for at least five years. I think Carbon has 
been uh, sold from Kenny since like, like 2015, 2016. So surprising no one's tried it yet. Yeah, dude, I'm actually surprised that nobody else has tried it. Um, but honestly, man, I'm hoping that they're not only compatible, I'm hoping they produce something weird. Like, I'll be honest. It'd be nice if, like, something unique ended up coming out of, you know, mixing two different, you know, black-eyed annery lines. So that that would be pretty awesome. Well, they have very, they have very different looks. Oh, yeah, um, totally, right? For sure. Yeah, so the, the RDRs, which is the central, they have really, really bold black... Um, overall color tone and the they're typically a little bit grayer where the um color would typically exist outside of the pattern and then the carbon and stuff is a lot more translucent ish which is why i guess the Potts brothers tried to play into um kenny's thing and call their black identities the translucents right um, they're just a lot more silvery um and the black isn't quite as bold so there's definitely it's it's almost like a, the two of them for sure it's almost purplish like a little bit of a purplish hue to it which i find really kind of neat but, definitely and i think that shows in the different double visuals that have been produced because uh, kenny's are a little bit purpley hue to them whereas the specter stuff that uh, chaz has made and um big mike they're a little bit more white and yeah. then the sun, well snow glow versions are a little bit kind of yellow which i thought that was surprising to see like that hue come out of it yeah no totally man and hopefully i'll have both uh i have Chaz coming up on the show soon and then uh hopefully i'll have kenny on uh fairly soon i've been nagging him a lot <laughs> at least before hunting season before he comes up here um anyway man so uh, <laughs> what other projects are you working with besides uh the uh the vpi and the carbon snow stuff um so i also work with sharp and um, paradise stuff as well because okay. i wanted a project that is a little bit more accessible to the average hobbyist um that also has an eye for quality right so whereas v vpi well vpi in general is a little bit you know cheaper these days than it was a couple of years ago uh the vpi snow project is obviously expensive as hell um Considering I sold a hypo double head for like fifteen hundred bucks, and uh, I was going to sell a VPI head black at Henry to Kenny for like five grand, um, yeah. so a lot different than like four hundred to eight hundred for sharp sunglow stuff. So there's a lot of things to be done with sharp. I feel like because it was kind of abandoned compared to call. I feel yeah. Um, obviously, you have guys like Horsch that are pushing it. And making cool stuff like the fire sharps and the Key West fire sharps and labyrinth sharps have been made. And I think actually the first sharp scoria was made last year. So yeah, um, still a lot to do with it. But overall, it's just a more accessible project. And I feel like in general, the sharp stock is a lot better looking than call, even though they both have the same sort of ability to be very vibrant and colorful. I feel like there's a lot more variance with call, whereas with sharp in general, it's a little bit more uh, potent the the quality of the lineages. I would say no, absolutely, and, and I think uh, one of the things to keep in mind is when you pick up a sharp animal, for the most part, right? 
you pretty much have a relatively straightforward idea of what it's going to look like as an adult, right? Whereas when you pick up a call animal, you don't know if this thing is going to fade out completely or if it's going to retain some sort of coloring, right? Unless you've you've been privy enough to some of the the parents and seeing what they ended up looking like, right? Yeah, so, definitely. What was that, Sergio? You could expand a little on um, the paradise. Like, uh, I've always thought it's obviously like an extension or a branch off the paradigm. But I know there's Paradise and Prodigy. Just want to see if you can explain a little bit more on the Paradise and what it is exactly. Okay. So um, with the Paradise stuff, obviously there were like talks that Prodigy and Bo and McCaramel are same and different. And I don't really care to get into it. Um, I'm planning to have both and just try and breed them together to see um, if they are compatible. Because I like proving compatibilities because I feel like there's a lot of them. Um, rumors and hush hush talks in the industry just like with key west and rlt so i want to try with prodigy and bow woman caramel but in general since ronnie is known for his very high quality stock that's why i first started with the prodigy um line of the para glow paradise stuff um because the color is a little bit better so i've seen a lot of paradigms that typically are pretty meh i'm gonna be honest compared to vpi right which is why I'm, I'm more into the vpi but um i was offered a trade for a paradise sun glow for one of my fires for my first litter and it was one of the best looking complex like sharp T positive complex animals i had ever seen and she's like two or three years old now and still super colorful and a testament to uh, i guess the prodigy line in general but um so that's mainly why i got into the prodigy stuff and it is like having two different projects coexist within one since you can you know use paradise or whatever to make both t negative and t positive animals right. so it's like you get even more variability more fun stuff to get out of a litter and so that that was one reason i got into that and Hopefully it also will, um, uh, more people will see that the different phenotypes that exist within that complex are uh, worth getting into. And I feel like the the sharp T-positive complex is starting to pick up traction again because uh, I think like Dustin Lindsay, if I'm remembering correctly, or Dustin Thompson, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, candy shop constrictors, I guess he does a yeah. lot of stuff with the paradigm in particular, but he has really nice stuff. So, and I think he's getting people fired up over that complex. So, um, it's just it's just a nice thing that goes hand in hand because with call you just have call, that's it. But with sharp, like you get the added bonus of having a T positive to play with. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And I'm, I'm kind of going down the same path uh, in a lot of ways. I have some paradise animals over here, and I also have some paradigms. And one of the things I can tell you that I'm doing that I always wondered what it would look like is i'm mixing some of the uh, european purple uh lines into it just so you could see you know what could yeah, potentially end uh, up coming out and I, and I don't think very many people are playing with that complex like you said yeah and i think you've had on a guy that is into the um purple yeah tyler johnson into the yeah and when i saw those those were pretty cool i'm not gonna lie um i i don't think i've seen any updated pictures because i'm pretty sure his first litter of them is like a year old so i would love to see how they look a year later but i do remember at the time when they were born thinking that they were very interesting and would love to see how they develop because obviously 
with boas they just the colors that are there intensify and so that's very true with the purple complex because they're kind of more diluted as babies and then they get really insane as they get older so i wanted to see that purple really come out so i'll have to try and uh stalk his facebook page later and see if yeah he's got some on there and i think we actually used uh one of the uh he's he, he produced some img uh uh purples uh, the nebula I, yeah the nebula so uh, you know those are those are aging pretty nicely man I've, I've seen a couple of those and i have a couple of uh i have a nebula over here man and i'm, I'm digging how it's aging man you know the tough thing with the purple yeah, line I've... is like with the purple line people have to be realistic of what they'll end up getting because it's like any other pastel lines right you can have some variance within you know any particular breeding right and like you could have animals that worst case scenario come out super coraled for lack of better better terms right like the coraling yeah, is insane that's pretty much if you struck out <laughs> at the very least you get this really nice coraling <laughs> on the yeah. other end they turn super blue <laughs> you know what i mean they turn so purple that they have yeah. this blue hues like like the stuff like thomas cyprich in europe is producing you know like you get these crazy blue line purple sun glows and stuff like that so there's a little bit of variance but it's it's a good project to, to kind of check out yeah and it's a crazy that that sort of um variance exists within you know basically the same sort of gene complex just by uh having different bloodlines um i think if i understand and the purple project a little bit uh, it's not something i've invested in but typically like the darker ish looking animals actually turn into purplier visuals if i understand that correctly yeah yeah so far okay so far yeah at, at least yeah, with the ones and, that i have um, yeah um so that's really interesting and odd how that works out um and I think people are starting to notice that in general, though, with like the IMG albino stuff, because most of them are underwhelming, be it call or sharp. Yeah. But I think Tyler has really shown what the IMG can do when combined with proper bloodlines in um, a T negative animal. Yeah, totally, man. So um, let's go back to kind of talking about some of the lessons learned. So give me some lessons learned uh, when you kind of went from. Uh, you know, a, a, a collection to more of a business uh, and maybe some things that you would um, would have done differently, let's say. Uh, um, so, well, first off, just in general is don't rush into too many different projects all at once. You kind of want to have one, maybe two main things you want to focus on and really nail those out um, rather than spreading yourself thin because I have had to kind of over the last few years, try and refine my collection. In general, I've always had kind of nice quality animals, but I was involved in so many different like projects that it didn't really make sense uh, to ha be so spread thin um, when I was you know just starting out. So over the last few years, I really kind of just narrowed it down to the two main things I well three I guess main things I work with, which is the VPI snow project vpis in general sharps and then just high quality well high color animals in general um so you you don't want to spread yourself too thin when you're building your collection as far as projects go as far as finding mentors go you want to find people that actually care about you and care about the animals care about the animals more so than you but um and don't find money as a huge motivator obviously no one likes to have to talk endlessly to someone 
if they're pestering them and don't spend any money with them but uh, there were one guy in particular that I spent boatloads of money with as far as like what I consider boatloads of money with that kind of stopped answering questions and stuff as soon as I stopped spending money with him so um, and that's one of the reasons I really like Thomas because uh, I have spent a good deal of money with Thomas but I've spent half as much money with him and gotten three or four times as much support as I've had in the past so um, just find people that actually care about a the animals that you're keeping and you as a person and um, stuff like that and I'm not really sure that I have any other lessons besides those are pretty good lessons dude <laughs> Yeah, I, one more lesson I guess I'll say is I think the hobby is finally starting to like make light the sort of negative uh, uh, part of breeding and keeping. Right. Because uh, I felt like when I was first getting in, everyone was making it like sugar-coated in that um, it's all fame and, well, not fame, but just like high times and stuff because I would see all the litters posted but no one tells you about that animals die and oh yeah you have hard times breeding um, you know like uh, no one tells you that when you go into a season it's perfectly common to have 50% success rate as far as getting your pairings to to actually produce anything and then you have you know um, complications with babies may they be weak in general genetically like uh, parthos I've had a couple babies die just because they were weak genetically right. um, you have mothers who don't um, end up recuperating properly from giving birth and stuff like that and unfortunately that's what happened to the animal that Sergio sold me uh, she ran out of steam at the tail end of giving birth and I found out the next day there was a baby still stuck inside of her, so I pulled it out and uh, fed her. She seemed to be fine, but I guess it, the fact that she ran out of steam should have probably been an indicator that something might end up going south with her, and she did end up passing because I guess she just exerted so much energy. Uh, from yeah, man. Birth, so that really sucked. Yeah, dude, I feel you, man. I actually and had so one of my I, uh, yeah. one of my most prevalent breeders uh, that happened to her about two years ago. You know, this this female was a big female, always produced nice large litters between, you know, 25 to 40 animals, never any problems. And then, you know, I usually gave her a couple of years off in between each litter, right? And then uh, when I went to do her fourth litter, and this is like an old, old uh, hypo uh, VPI female that I had. Man, same exact thing. She just looked like she just ran out of steam. And uh, I recognized it quick enough, man, and, I, and she survived for a while, for a couple of months, right? But she was never the same after delivering that litter, and it got to the point where she just stopped eating. I was trying to keep her alive by force-feeding her, which is something people don't like to admit, but I'll freely admit that. I will do whatever I can do to keep my animals alive and to keep them healthy, especially animals that I have, like, a sentimental attachment to, right? Like I did to this female, and, you know, at the end of the day, she ended up passing. So you're absolutely right. There's this part of the hobby that people don't want to acknowledge but the reality is it happens and it is part of the hobby right and it's stuff that people need to uh, be mentally prepared to deal with getting an animal that ends up passing like that doesn't mean you got burned because of the animal or anything like that it's an animal it's just like just like in humans sometimes yeah. people die giving birth you know what i mean and not every single birth is going to be you know equal so 
just something to keep in mind for, exactly. for those people that are coming into the hobby. So let me ask you, dude, what do you see as yeah. the future of the hobby? Where do you want the hobby to move towards? What are some of the trends that you're seeing? Um, I think one good thing I've been noticing is, um, at least in general, more people are starting to focus on quality lineages rather than just buying things for the morph and just uh, slamming morphs together, which has never really been a huge thing anyways with boas because it's a much different ball game than balls, but still there existed some pretty kind of run-of-the-mill animals, um, probably because of, you know, show quality stuff as far as just getting animals to sell at show so you don't really care about the quality so price them cheap move them quick that sort of deal but i feel like in general because of facebook and stuff like that people are seeing these really nice animals and it's making them want to have animals like that within their collection so they're focusing on buying the stuff and breeding the stuff that's nice that way whenever they open the tub they're you know at the end of the day satisfied with the purchase and how their collection is and as far as jeans that i think are starting to pick up prevalence or have at least always been pretty prevalent or like IMG. I'm amazed actually at how IMG has held its value. It's crazy that a dominant gene for the past like three or four years still, you, hey, you can't even find normal IMGs. Um, and even if you do, they're going to sell out instantly and they're still like 800 to a grand despite the yeah. fact that they've been at that price point for the past like three or four years. So I, I think it's that's the main thing I love about the boas um, is that even though there's a lot of hardship that goes with breeding them because they're hard to breed and a lot of their stuff is desirable the values stay up pretty well so um, but I, I see a lot of T negative and T positive stuff um, starting to be strengthened with quality lineages and that's one thing that I, I really am happy to see the, the hobby sort of move towards is no longer accepting mediocre animals and also mediocre care because i see a lot of hell yeah the vocal guys out there like thomas and chris all they may troll noobs but at the end of the day they are helping um even if they're hurting maybe one or two people's feelings in the process overall they're doing a lot more good for the hobby than than bad so i like that absolutely man all right, boys, so we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, combining pastel lines that produce the best possible animals, okay? All right, everybody, we're back. So um, one of the things that I wanted to cover is what it takes to really produce super high color animals. I know we've been talking about uh, what it takes to, you know, bring in some of the darker colors uh, into projects to really create that strong contrast. But there's a lot of people that are really into high colored animals. And let's be completely honest. The majority of people who first come into the boa hobby tend to be attracted by bright colored little little worms right so i mean like that's what catches people's eyes at shows that's what catches people's eyes online so whenever you are trying to produce really bright animals obviously you're going to try to select the right pastel lines and you're going to try to bring them in but there's a lot of people that are purist when it comes to pastel lines they don't like mixing <laughs> pastel lines and um they are actually shooting themselves in the foot because I'm of the mindset that I like to take the best from any place that I can get it to essentially produce the best. And each pastel line tends to have like a defining characteristic 
when it interacts with certain recessive genes, right? So for example, like red panther pastels that the VPI complex tend to work with, you know, produces a really r deep red color animals. If you look at some of the animals produced, for example, by microscope, you can see that there's that heavy contrast between that super like dark lipstick red of red panther sun glows with, you know, kind of the background cream colored uh, of the snake itself and then there's other lines for example such as summit pastel that creates like a golden buckskin color in, an in the same you know vpi animals and depending on what your goal is and what you're trying to produce you know there's a pastel line out there that might be able to kind of suit your needs guys talk to me about why selecting the right pastel lines is important to advancing your boa projects um well I like what you said about how there are a lot of purists out there with pastel lineages, which is definitely true. Pastel guys are a lot like um, locality guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they think that crossing lines is sacrilege. But um, I think in order to maintain genetically strong animals, you can't be breeding them within the same lineage for very long. Uh, otherwise, you probably just start seeing genetically weaker animals because technically you're just inbreeding at that point. Um, and even though reptiles are capable of being inbred for maybe a generation or two, it's never good to keep going down that same road. So I think I, I don't really care about mixing pastel lineages as long as you go for stuff that's kind of similar or if you have a specific goal in mind with whereas some, some uh, lineages have overall brighter saturation, but they don't have any contrast. So if you go with something that's clean contrast and then go with the saturation line, then you get something that is in the middle and you get an overall better animal. Um, so there's multiple reasons that I advocate for crossing pastel lineages, even though some would say it's uh, <laughs> it's taboo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about some of the pastel lines that you like to work with and kind of what you take from those pastel lines. Um, so... I was involved with Ferrari uh, from DM and Amy, which is one of those lineages that is just, in general, very saturated. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what the visual VPI's uh, Ferraris look like, because if the red rum is any indication, the T-positive stuff does really well with high saturation animals. Um, and then Summit is another line I was working with. Um, I had a Summit Jungle Het Tea from Jason at Premeditated Morphs, um, and he was just a jungle, no hypo, no nothing, and he gave like a, even hypos a run for money as far as his uh, side saturation went, so that was a very contrasty and bold lineage because the pattern was very bold in contrast but you still have the saturation on the side so i think summit is a very good lineage to use with pattern morphs because it's able to kind of accentuate the bold pattern morphs such as motley um, that's a like really that. good point man Oof, i haven't even thought about that look at this the young buck teaching us something. all right <laughs> yeah yeah so you want to you want to find stuff that complements other um, genes so Obviously, like the super saturated animals are really good as as normals, I feel, which is why Ferrari has always looked really awesome. But I, I think a true testament to a lineage is how it combines with genes. And I think Cherry and Summit are the best examples of that. Um, Cherry isn't a line that's very well known, I feel like, anymore. 
but it exists within a handful of collections. I have a cherry line animal. I wouldn't call her like a pure cherry because she's technically only got it from her mother, but I don't even really care about lines anymore. But some of the stuff that's true, cherries, as the cherry line animals and the cherry jungles, cherry mollies and stuff like that that he's produced are absolutely freaking insane. The best molly I've ever seen, just a molly that's a pastel, was a cherry molly and it had this overall lighter uh, base tone and then super saturated side um, coloration and I think I think that's one thing that's awesome about pastels is that they're able to just take um, genes in general and just make them ten times better like jungle is the best gene to combine with pastels I feel like um, because right. it's a very contrasty morph and since it doesn't really mess around a whole lot with the overall color tone and color palette of the animal, you can have these super saturated animals that still have, you know, full dorsal stripes and still will have two-tone because that if you have a quality jungle, you're going to have a two-tone animal. So you'll have super, super saturated sides and then a nice khaki top. But some of the most potent pastel animals I've seen are to the point... I think DM, since you are going to have her on the show, she has a cherry jungle that is just full saturated, like, everywhere. Not a spot on him that is sort of shade of red or pink. That kind of addressed uh, what you look for within the cherries and within uh, the summer pastel lines. Are there any other pastel lines out there that you've kind of had an interest on that maybe you haven't quite jumped to yet that you're, you think have uh, a certain level of potential? Um... So, I mean, I think the Pastel Dream stuff is a really quality lineage as long as it's the true Pastel Dream stuff, um, especially combined with the Monster Tail. Uh, both lines right. were created, you know, with Boa File. And when combined, I think um, it it does great things because you have the Monster Tail that's bold, uh, boldening the pattern, and then you have the Pastel Dream that is upping the contrast and saturation levels. So that's one pastel lineage I'd like to get into. But in general, I just like working with high color animals. So I'll always just be looking out for something that jumps out to me just because of its um, contrast and saturation. And probably my greatest boa purchase in this hobby, and many people are jealous of her, is a... Oh, and even I've struck out even more recently with this last litter I had from her. I bought a normal, which... She was a pastel, and the dude did label her as a pastel. But it was a normal that was sold to me for het nothing um, for 150 bucks from a local guy in Orlando. I picked it up, and he was like, yeah, I bought this at Orlando Repticon from Adam Chesla. And I don't know if any of your listeners know who Chesla is because he doesn't really do Facebook stuff, but he's a guy here in Florida who has a lot of high-end morphs oh, yeah. and has really colorful animals. Definitely. And um, so when he told me that it was from Chesla, I, I bought her just because of how colorful she was. I saw her come up in a local group, and I was like, don't even care the background of this animal, just the way it looks, because she was red as hell overall. She's not a very contrasty animal, right. but I just am a sucker for overall saturation, and she has an uh, overall red tone to her. And um, I bought her, produced... A litter of fires. A lot of people say that it was like some of the best single gene fires were produced in that litter, and um, so I sold out of all of that litter 
and unfortunately i was stupid and didn't keep any back for myself oh um <laughs> yeah I hate but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh so i started gaining some respect i think with that litter because the fires that i made were really saturated because of her um and then this past litter i was just going for quality het sharp stuff because i knew the kind of animals she was capable of throwing and i had this sharp sunglo jungle motley that i got from thomas that was produced by jesse hermanson um, and he's really nice. He's got pretty good color, but uh, I still just like infusing color in general. So I was, was like, I'm going to make even better looking hats and then make even better looking visuals. And so unfortunately, she mainly slugged out. But uh, the kicker is she ended up turning out to be het sharp. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the first, first thing I noticed when I pulled the tub when I went to check on her uh was a sharp jungle motley just staring back at me i was like what the hell <laughs> and so i was super stoked on that but then i noticed the tons of slugs and then there were two parthos it turned out and the weaker one ended up passing uh she never ended up eating or even having her first shed but the other one the other partho is doing quite well thankfully and she is a super, super nice pastel. And I've had tons of people message me, be like, you have to sell me that animal. I'm like, no, A, it's a partho, so I'm not going to sell it because it's a partho. And then B, right. uh, you can't have it because it's super colorful. So um, I'm really stoked that I, I was able to kind of see just the potency of what she's able to produce that dam. So I think it's really nice... Uh, to have an animal like her because I feel like I'm not going to label my own, you know, pastel line or anything because I'm not one of those guys. But I have been told that just because of the quality of animals that she produces from her two litters, um, that she is like a pastel founding animal. And right. so I plan to base my sharp project using her as the matriarch to create super nice hets and then eventually, well, actually I can just make visuals right now since it turns out she's head sharp. So, in general, I feel like you don't necessarily have to buy an animal that has a pastel image attached to it because there are quality animals that exist throughout the hobby regardless. And just find something that has the traits you're looking for and just go from there. Now, is there anything that you look for specifically whenever you're selecting animals for your to bring into your own collection? Uh, saturation is the first thing, like... If it's not colorful, I don't care. Yeah. Um, unless it's like an IMG or um, like a black eyed annery. But even the black eyed annery stuff, the the higher contrast animals are created by animals that have um, in the het form, the heterozygous form, typically higher saturation. So basically everything I buy in some way, shape or form, I bought it because it has a lot of saturation. No, I got gotcha. you. contrast. Got it. Sergio, how about you, man? Is there anything you look for whenever you're looking for animals to kind of bring into your collection? It's the, Well, in the past, I, I kind of don't anymore, but in the past, it's been, um, it, it catches my eye. And, and the same thing, like uh, James says, it's usually saturation, color, pattern. For me, I'm like a, a real sucker for pattern if it's cleanliness and stuff like that. Um, if it catches my eye and it's something that fits my projects, typically I'll probably end up getting it. Awesome. 
All right, guys. So now uh, we're going to pivot a little bit, and I want to talk about uh, setting up the right ambient uh, temperatures, okay, and basically the importance on that. So one of the things that we end up um, chatting about with people in the past is that, you know, you really have to dial in your temperatures with your animals to really be successful, right? Maintaining the correct ambient temps and humidity is always critical to getting your boas to be not only healthy, but healthy enough to produce, right? So boys, tell me why having the right ambient temps and the right humidity is critical to success. Um, well, I mean, obviously you want to try and keep them as close to what they would be in the wild as possible. Um, otherwise you run into issues such as digestion issues and right. respiratory issues because boas are very prone to respiratory issues if they're not provided the right humidity and temperatures. Uh, they're not as forgiving of species as like pythons, f for instance. Um, they aren't, you know, as anal as your arboreal stuff, but you still have to have it dialed within a certain percentage of fail-safe, I would say. So right. you want to have, like, what would be your ideal temperature and then allow for variance in, in either direction. So a good guideline would be, like, 75 ambient and allow for a couple degrees either way. Um, so where I live in Florida, thankfully, it's pretty much perfect for achieving that sort of swing. So most of the time um, when it's not hot as hell uh <laughs> it's like 75 degrees in in the room um i have a shed that i built for them it's temperature and humidity controlled but it's 75 degrees in the hotter months even with the ac running it will get up to like 78 degrees but then in the cooler months it'll get you know as low as 72 sometimes only during breeding season will i allow it to go to like 70 um but allowing for some sort of natural variance i think one thing is not sticking to the same temperature year round so allowing a variance kind of stimulates the sort of seasonal changes because they don't really have very drastic seasonal changes where they're from uh, it's really minute which is why you want to only allow like a few degrees in temperature change with your ambient and mainly you want to hone in your hot spot because during the hot part of the day you know for them it's 90 degrees and then at night it gets down to upper 70s so you want to hone your hotspot for regular keeping at probably like 88 to 90 and then during breeding you can drop your night temperature by like 10 degrees um, to like 80 degrees something like that and that way it kind of stimulates them into reproductive sort of uh, activities and stuff like that how about you Sergio yeah, pretty much. What's the echoed about the issues you can have with respiratories or, or feeding? Uh, they can regurgitate too low or stuff like that. Um, and then depending on what kind of caging you have, like for me, I have a rack system on on the whole room, so I keep. Uh, it's in a brick building, so I, I have heaters and stuff like that, air circulation, and um, I just manage it year round. During the summer, I can kill everything off, and then just stays ambient where I need it to. Or in the summer, I'm running um, a heater and stuff like that to maintain it. So it, it's uh, and uh, humidity as well. I, I run a outdoor unit that I pipe into the room, and I uh, have uh, sensors through the room that kind of keeps it roughly about the same. Um, but for those that have like caging style or 
like for instance, uh, I think it's APS or ball files and stuff like that. That's what I started with, where they have to manage each cage individually um, versus the right. room. Then it's just difference for everybody, but that's how I do it. Are you uh, guys humidity? Yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah, the humidity is a huge thing that, that I feel like isn't emphasized as much as it should be. Um, obviously, everyone is kind of drilled into managing their temperatures, but uh, humidity issues can have a lot to do with, um, you know, obviously respiratory issues and then as, as also breeding activity. So having a de dedicated and controlled humidifier is something that I would recommend a lot of people getting into. Um, so you want to, at minimum, have like ambient humidity 60 to 65 degrees year round and then bump it up during breeding season to like 70 to 80 somewhere in that range to kind of simulate the wet season um, not only will you have you know better sheds in general but you'll typically see a bit more willingness to breed if you have a dialed in humidity setup whereas you're not having to miss them every day they the animals don't like being bothered really a whole lot so you want to have something that you know is going to constantly have the perfect settings for your animal without as much interference from you as possible all right yeah. that's awesome man um, yeah and keeping the room humidity is so much better than having to spray mist them um, takes a lot of time and like james said you're bothering them you're having to open every tub and right. do all that stuff so are you guys like an ambient uh temp kind of uh setup or versus rack heat or are you a combo for me it's a combo i'm combo it sounds like sergio's a combo too yeah yeah no same here um, and mind you there's a lot of keepers that uh, that do you know exclusively ambient and i know a few of them that are rack heat only and they try to dial those ends and obviously there's uh pros and cons to all of them i know for a lot of folks um that you know prefer having that rack heat only typically it's because they're keeping multiple species in that room right and each one of those species might have a different like criteria as far as uh temperature goes um, i'm personally a combo one i maintain kind of a an average ambient heat uh, temp of about 72 in my room with you know hot spots uh based on what the species requirements are because i do keep multiple species over here um so um as far as the humidity that's honestly for me has been the biggest struggle luckily i've never been in a situation where i've had issues with uh, respiratory uh problems with my snakes uh, but honestly i live in really high altitudes so like my house sits at 7,000 feet and one of the big issues over here is maintaining a good level of humidity right and i've tried a whole bunch of different humidifiers and i'm going to try one that uh thomas just recommended that i just ordered on amazon hopefully that'll be able to solve it but over here for my end essentially i'm i'm stuck <laughs> you know spraying them down manually every day so it is what it is but uh, i i am a big fan of uh making sure that we have um, uh, you know, various humidity sensors throughout uh, uh, my room. Uh, I have uh, humidity sensors associated with all my racks, and all my humidity sensors are Bluetooth controlled. You know, they're fairly cheap sensors. They're about like $40, and they all connect to an app. And they also do temps, which is really nice. So that way I can see if there's any, any major uh, change in temperature. Because unlike, you know, Sergio in the LA area, and then, uh, uh, James, uh, you out there in Florida, over here I have some extreme temperature changes, right? Just because oh, yeah. I'm in a place where, you know, 
one part of the year it could be 90 degrees and another part of the year it could be negative 20 you know so it's just one of those yeah it's just one of those items that i have to unfortunately um manage real carefully anyways boys um do you guys have any tips that you want to give the listeners as far as maintaining the right uh humidity or temps i think it just depends on the area for instance i I remember i think it was last year thomas saying uh think it was probably summer he was just maintaining ambient temps no heat no rack heat nothing like that especially on babies and um but i know his facility is more i think he built it out so he's got insulated walls stuff like that it's more specified for it as to where i'm like in a brick building i built a room within it but you know my exterior walls aren't uh insulated so that's why i manage it a little differently so i guess and like for instance for you where you have to do it a certain way so my way obviously won't work for everybody, like even in Florida perhaps, but um, you just kind of have to work it a little different and uh, it'll work not the same for everybody, you know, but. Yeah, I think that's um, one thing people need to be is adaptable because there's obviously guidelines um, that you should keep these animals, but then you have to find a way to meet those needs based on your environment and where you're keeping them and totally. and stuff like that so um but as far as tips on maintaining stuff like that obviously at minimum you need a thermostat and heat tape and probe uh that's the bare minimum and then you have if, if you really want to get um you know very high-end with it and very care focused uh go like how thomas and chris are and have each specific level controlled separately because there are variances within the heat panels themselves within a, the same rack and just because of how heat works in general obviously the higher it is the hotter it is so stuff like that um that but the bare minimum is thermostat probe heat tape nothing else should be used as far as like um you know the old school bowls and and stuff like that um and then i would really really suggest that bare minimum doing what you're doing as as far as having humidity probes where you can see what the humidity is even though you don't have a fully automated system that's obviously a lot better than just spraying the tubs once a day and <laughs> that's that hoping for the deal best. yeah <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. uh, if, if you can spend the money it's actually not that expensive to do even like a DIY humidifier setup, which is what I'm running. Um, so basically you just have a big old tub, fill it with water, have a ultrasonic um, mist head in there hooked up to a humidistat, then have a fan to distribute the um, mist within the room. And basically that's that. That's awesome. You auto- wow. Automate your... Uh, <laughs> automate your humidity and don't have to worry about you know animals having bad sheds i've only had like ever since i switched this setup i've only had one bad shed and i think the male was just stressed from breeding and that was why he had a bad shed but other than that it's literally not something i ever have to worry about um animals having difficulty shedding and respiratory issues stuff like that so it's nice to have a set it and forget it obviously it's good to not forget about it and just double check (laughs) but you know what i mean yeah awesome boys all right guys so we're gonna take a break and then when we come back we're gonna hit the dirty dozen all right okay (laughs) 
All right, guys, it's time for the Dirty Dozen. I'm going to ask you 12 questions, and you give me 12 answers. They can be as short or as long as you want. All right, you ready, James? Yes, sir. All right, number one, what is the size of your current collection? Uh, definitely smaller than it was in the past, so around 20, I think, at the moment. Okay. Number two, husbandry-wise, uh, are you a frozen and thawed guy, or are you a live guy, and what's your betting choice? Uh, so definitely frozen thawed. The only time I do live is for stubborn babies because sometimes, even though boas are notorious for being aggressive eaters, when they're first born, they're a little bit kind of skittish with everything around them. So um, basically always frozen thawed. And as far as betting choice, um, I've been running like a hybrid setup for a while now. So I will run a liner in anything besides the baby racks because i just run paper towels with babies but anything older than that i have a liner of some sort i have custom cut liners for my ars uh, 7030 rack that allows the liner to already have a hole cut out for the bowl that's in the tubs and then i just use like corrugated paper for my what are they 9060 or something like that the big four footers um, and then I run Aspen in the back half of the caging because having some sort of hard and pointy bedding is good for allowing the animals to A, hide if they want, and B, uh, muscular structure because I think that's something that's not emphasized as much is that these animals need something to stimulate their muscle tone. So that's why having Aspen is good. But see the reason I run a 50-50 setup like that is um, it eliminates, all but eliminates, it's a very small percentage chance that they could get impacted while eating and stuff like that because since the aspen is in the back half of the cage at the front, there's no bedding there, so when they go to eat, everyone knows boas are super lively eaters. Um, you don't want them to get any bedding in their mouth or stuff like that. So that's why I run a system like that. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. I can stimulate their muscle structure as well as reduce the chances of impaction. Awesome, man. Number three, what is your favorite morph or locality? Um, favorite morph complex is VPI. Favorite locality is probably... I'm torn between Argentine and Amaralis. I really want to get some. But yeah, those are my two favorite localities awesome man all right number four what is the most overrated morph um, or your least favorite if that's it <laughs> if that's how you want to answer it everyone loves uh, that question <laughs> yeah it's a hard one or what's your least favorite morph let's just put it that way yeah for you, per so, for you personally i think uh the most overrated or at least my least favorite, just because there are better genes that e exist within it, uh, the complex would be like the uh, Eclipse stuff. I'm not like taking a jab at people that breed Eclipses because they are cool as babies, but uh, they typically end up showing the pattern as they grow up, whereas IMGs, they get darker as they grow up. So right. I, I'm not saying that it's a bad combo by any means because um, look at the stuff Tim has made. Um, with his VPI Eclipse. Uh, did he make... I'm pretty sure he made a VPI Eclipse, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. that thing is uh, pretty dope. So, uh, I'm not taking a jab at it, but yeah. 
All right, man. Number five, what's the most underrated morph? Um, I think it's starting to gain a little bit more traction now due to the Black Devil, but the Black Eyed Annery stuff. All right, number six, what, what's your favorite part of the hobby? Um, talking to people that, you know, allow you to expand your knowledge of keeping these animals, learning the history of the industry in general and stuff like that. So I would say the people that you meet, because there are a lot of good people out there, obviously, as with anything, there's bad people, but I would say a lot of the people involved are pretty stand-up people. And then, obviously, the animals themselves, because I love, you know, opening the tub every day to check on them, just seeing them go about their daily life. Yeah, no, totally. All right, number seven, what's the worst part of the hobby? Um, I'm torn on this one. It's either people spreading false information or just, uh, in general, being detrimental to the hobby. And actually, you know what? I've, I have one that I'm going to take a hard line on. Uh, it's people that don't realize how their actions have negative repercussions for the industry Ooh. at large. Damn, um, because people don't realize that this industry in general, I'm speaking species, like not even species specific, is always under constant attack from outside forces such as the Humane Society and PETA. And you have people that want to take away our rights and if you do anything negative on, and it's you know sh shown on social media there can be real repercussions for everyone that's involved with this and that is one thing that i really don't like and wish people would understand is that there's no like harmless um nothing in this industry is necessarily harmless if, if it has some sort of negative connotation in it because it can always be used as a weapon against us that's awesome that's a good all right one. Number eight, what other species do you keep and why? And if you don't keep anything else, what would you like to eventually keep? Well, I still have that first ball python, but as far as other species I would like to get into, um, I would like to get back into carpets. Uh, the carpet python stuff's really cool. And then um, I really would like to get into some arboreals. I'm not, I, I'm thinking I'm going to lean towards chondros uh, just because the caninus complex or i think actually it's corallus the caninus is the basins but the corallus complex of animals the emeralds they're just typically uh, a bit more finicky i i've noticed than the chondros so i think i'm leaning towards chondros as another species to get into got it all right man number nine what's a common misconception about you i don't really know because uh <laughs> I don't really think there, at least I didn't really think people talked about me a whole lot, but if anything, I guess it's, uh, people think that I'm some wiser guy or something, or, uh, I'm really just a kid who's kind of trying to, you know, make my way in this, doing what I want and learning as much about keeping these animals as I can. That's awesome, man. And one thing I will say, I think one of the misconceptions is the fact that since you are a young guy, people would assume that you don't know what you're doing. But, you know, you're actually really far ahead of where I feel like I was when I was, you know, your age and I was in the hobby. Because I think, I think me and you got into the hobby about the same time. So I feel you on that, man. All right. Um, number 10, what makes you say, what was I thinking when you look back at your time in the hobby? Um, I don't really have like any true regrets 
um, and s moments like that. But like I said, the only thing I would maybe change is the fact that I kind of was like a kid in a candy shop and bought way too many things rather than being kind of focused. That would probably be the only thing kind of uh, regretting, I guess. Okay. Number 11, what's one tip you would give the people looking to invest in boas and reptiles? Um, have specific projects you're looking to get into and only settle for the highest quality that your money is able to afford you awesome man and then final question number 12 you got any shout outs you want to throw out there um thomas mason dm um i don't talk to anthony a whole lot anthony honeywood these days but shout out to him um Roscoe, Mike Roscoe, he's honestly one of the most upbeat guys I've ever talked to in this hobby. It just sounds like he's happy 24-7. Hell yeah, he I does. Really yep. like that. <laughs> That's the truth. All right, man. Well, guys, that wraps it up for today. Uh, James and Sergio, tell the people out there where they can see your animals and learn more about you. Um, yes, yeah, so if you want to, you can add me on Facebook. My name's James Rubio, or uh, my business pages are Boa Bonanza on Facebook, Boa Bonanza Morph Market, and Boa underscore Bonanza on Instagram. Sergio? On Instagram and Morph Market, it's Sergio underscore Hernandez underscore Reptiles, and Facebook, just Sergio Hernandez. Pretty, All right, pretty easy And then you guys can find me at uh, Carlos uh, Andres on Facebook and uh, Morphs Unleashed. Guys, thanks for listening. We are out. Guys, that was a great episode. Knowing that the future of the hobby is in the hands of young guys like James is super motivating. Thanks to James Rubio of Bob Bonanza for joining us today. Join us on our next episode as we speak with Dave Palumbo of Palumbo's Pythons and Boas. We're going to talk about his work with Dwarf Boas. We're also going to talk about his life as a professional bodybuilder and the importance of establishing a social media presence. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Do us a favor. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube. Until next time, grow them slow.